This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions. Podcast guests and their clients may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hello, and welcome back to the Three Wise Monkeys podcast, a weekly podcast that's all about the markets and investing. My name's Andrew Page, founder of strawman.com, and today I'm joined by Mr. Claude Walker from ethicalequities.com.au. How are you, Claude? I'm well, thanks, but unfortunately today we're missing Matt from mattjoss.com. Matt not feeling too well today. Yeah, that's a real pity. We'll definitely miss him. But we've got an exciting lineup of topics to talk about. Andrew, what are you going to talk about today? Yeah, we do. I thought I'd um, do a bit of a highlight on integrated research, a stock that's really been in the doldrums for quite a while, but then had a really big pop last week. So it looks like things might be turning there. And Yeah, uh, and I bet you wish that you'd done your scorecard review after that pop, right? Yeah, we talked a bit about that. Was it last week or so? So that certainly helped push things along and a few other things moving in the right direction. But hey, that's volatility and that's what you get with small cap investing, right? Yeah, well, that, that happens and the market doesn't always play ball. Yeah. So me, I'll be talking about the subject of the most recent hidden research on ethical equities. Mm. Uh, that's XREF. The ticker is ASXXF1. Um, now, that research was written by a good friend of mine, Matt Brazier. Mm-hmm. So all credit to him on uh, doing the hard yards on that one. Although I should disclose I own the stock and I look forward to giving you an outline. Okay, well, it sounds really interesting. And we thought if we have enough time without Matt to slow us down with all his usual waffle, we might actually get through. Uh, Joking, Matt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Don't worry. He's the most concise of the three of us. The wisest of the monkeys. But we might get through to some uh, listener questions as well. Yeah, we've been looking forward to that actually for a long time. So let's kick it off. Integrated research. So let me give you a very brief overview of this business. Uh, we like to talk tech. Our listeners know that we like to talk tech, but this is an old tech company. This guy, These guys were formed in 1988. They've been around for a very, very long time. Starting from the beginning. Starting from the beginning. Um, they are the absolute global leader in their field. 1,200 customers globally. They're in 60 different countries. You know, I think it's like 125 of the Fortune 500 companies are customers of theirs. The software in question is what they term experience management solutions, which sounds like a fairly airy-fairy kind of term, but this is software that monitors really vital client systems. It ensures that they're operating properly, it identifies any issues, it predicts disruptions, and then provides like guidance so they can rectify any potential issues. So if you're a a big company and you've got um, some really important software that you need need to ensure is running really, really well, um, you need to have this kind of stuff. And so they've been doing that for ages. The shareholder returns long term are absolutely insane. If you bought this these guys 10 years ago, you would have compounded at more than 30% per year over that time frame. Over the last five years, it's about 17% per annum. Having said that, shares did halve from a record high that they hit early last year, and they just kept on going down and down and down. And so why was that? I'll be the resident cynic as usual. That's a really good question. I think there's a I think there's a combination of factors there. I think it was 
this was a company that, as I said, the shareholder returns have been great. That has been driven by phenomenal sales and earnings I love this. share growth. So why is it down? Oh, the shareholder returns have been great. They have been great. No, you, you, context, Claude. It's all about context. Okay, and so for a bit of context, there they, was... They were performing really, really well and have for a very, very long time. And they, the market had ascribed to them a growth multiple. They came out with their full year results last year and essentially revenue and profit was flat. So when you have a company that's priced for growth and then you see things stall, the market reaction can be pretty brutal. Now, add to that, there's a couple of more wrinkles here as well. They have these reseller partnerships with these other big organizations. Avea was one of them. They got in. They got into Chapter 11 over in the US, so that knocked their sales back a heap. By the way, they've since restructured and they've re-signed a new reseller agreement, so that's back up and running. There were some troubles in the European operations. They just self-admittedly not executing well. We've had this long, long-term uh, founder who uh, has stepped down. Here we go. And a little more on that, please. <laughs> You're such a cynic. You're such a cynic when it comes to people. This was telegraphed a long time in advance. The stepping down, maybe. But um, if I recall correctly, there was like the founder who was also the chairman, I want to say. Yes, he was the chairman. Yeah, yep. And he sold... Steve uh, Kalelia. Yeah. So I'm pronouncing that right. Now, not to take anything away from the many years of good returns building the company, etc. Mm-hmm. But it looked to me... And like to a lot of other people, like the order of events were not what I look for in a company. And I think the order of events were, please do correct me if I'm wrong, is uh, he sold some shares. He did early 2018. So How he, many shares? Uh, about 15 million shares. So, he's, so he was worth, uh, he owned 48% of the company. Yeah. Now he only, quote unquote, owns 40%. But how much was those 15 million shares worth? Uh, when been, he sold It, it would have been 350 or something. Yeah, so like over $40 million dollars worth. Oh, it was a very big chunk yeah, of change. Yeah, so he cashed out in a big way. He did. And then when... Well, he's got four, he's got 40% of the company. Yeah, but I'm just wondering now then what was like the... Was there an upgrade after that? Uh, no, there wasn't. Oh, okay. Yeah. So was there a downgrade after that? The, well, uh, that this was pre their flat result for 2018. Oh, it gets better, Claude. What I, caused I the share you? price to like tank? Okay, so I think it was largely a consequence of a growth company being revalued. A big part of that. You're going to love this. The other part of it was we had a CEO, uh, John Merikovsky, um, who had only been in the role for about 18 months and he stepped down uh, towards the end of last year for quote-unquote family reasons. Wait, so you've got the chairman founder selling <laughs> and then you've got the company falling short of expectations. Yes. Right? And then... and. I honestly, I had in my mind, and this may be wrong, but I had in my mind that there was like actually a downgrade of guidance or something like that. Uh, no, it was just, uh, well, well, heading into the full year result, they did say that things are going to be flat and they delivered a flat result. Yeah, right. Okay. Anyway, so. And, but- and, and so, and this, this is the problem, right? So, um, and then last week, what caused a 20% plus surge, one day pop in, in the share price was that these guys... Uh, updated the market and they said, actually, we're going really well. We expect first half revenue to jump somewhere between 7 and 11% because of the operating leverage in the business that software companies tend to have. That means that the pre-tax profit is going to be somewhere between 20, 25, 26% higher in the first half. That, my friend, is a very, very strong quantum of, of growth and 
importantly too, the European operations, they, they made uh, some mention there that things are back on track. So we're going to get the full detail, uh, I think mid-February when they actually release their full audited results. But the update to the market really sort of suggested that, hey, actually things are back on track. Okay. We are back on a growth pathway. Okay, I've got the order of events here. So on in March 2018, that was when the big sell down came. Yeah, we would have been around that. Yep. $57 million worth of shares. Mm-hmm. And then we had in July, four months later, a um, profit guidance was given. Mm-hmm. And on that day in July, the share price moved from $3 to $2.50. Yeah, it was a big drop. So I'm yeah. assuming that was a disappointing guidance for the market. Yeah, as I said, the market was expecting yeah. growth. Now I and should- then, And then the chairman retires and you have a CEO quitting. So you can see yeah. why the market got very negative on this. Yeah, totally. Now maybe they got too negative, not to take that away from you. I, when did you add it to your scorecard? I only card? added it to my scorecard about a month or so ago. Yeah. And this is my point. But, look, when so you see the a- problem is, like, do you think, so for me, and maybe this is where there's undervaluation, but mm. for me, as with a lot of other people, I know a lot of people that after that first July um, guidance, mm. they're disappointed. They said, oh, you know, you've got the sell down and then you've got the disappointing guidance and that was enough for them. And they got out at 250 and that turned out to be the right decision for them. They could buy buck today at 220. Yeah. So, yeah, to me... I, I, I wonder if it is still good value at 220. I, I think it is. Um, I'd encourage listeners to jump onto my straw man profile. I've got a valuation of around about uh, 255 or so. And I think that's pretty undemanding as well. I mean, let's just step back for a second. Now, the, consistently, when they issued that guidance, they always said these were short-term issues. The business has never been in a, in a stronger position. They've got zero debt. There's $11 million in cash. of their revenues come from overseas and 88% of those revenues are recurring in nature. So this is a business, again, with a wonderful pedigree. And these are the kinds of things that I definitely keep on a watch list. Businesses that have delivered incredible, incredible shareholder value for many, 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 many years. Founder-led, massive inside ownership. And and totally, did they deserve to be trading at $4 at the time? No. And I didn't hold them or recommend them at the time. This is where your contrarian move has paid off in that- Well, so far. it It would appear that the bad news was all out. The you, pendulum to my Did you actually buy or did you just put I, I, on I only straw man? wish I'd bought some. I'd, I, so I'd recommended them on Strawman. Having said that, um, my situation at the moment is there's a lot of my capital sort of going to support the business. So there's there's that consideration. So Could I'm not, I'm not actually buying much shares. at all at the moment. Well, I thought we were going to go on episode <laughs> without mentioning Catapult or ProMedicus. Um, uh, so I, I think it's a very interesting thing to, to, to note that with the market. The pendulum swings both ways. Like the market gets excited and the valuation gets a little crazy. The market gets disappointed and things get a little bit silly. And and when you have a business of such high quality, um, it's such a defensive business and all the other characteristics I talk about. And it just got to a point like once it was below two, I mean, I'm not going to pretend I for a second I picked the bottom, but once it was below about two bucks, like this thing is just, it is too cheap. You only had to assume yeah, some sort of like mid to high single much digit more earnings growth to get to get value out of that. I feel much more comfortable saying, "Oh, this has gone too far down." When you've got a company that has a long history of dividends, positive cash flow, profits, all that all sort of thing, of, they pay a dividend. I so agree. it's a three yeah. percent yield. And by the I mean, way, to I'm the not saying I was it's playing devil's cheap. advocate. When when I saw the sell down and the quitting and all that sort of stuff, I wouldn't go near it. Yeah. But 
Yeah, I, I can definitely I was see nervous too. one for putting on your watch I was list. nervous too, man. And But it, it gets to a point where you kind of think, yeah, I get that. And, and I, li- I like to sort of go through a what-if scenario. And you say, well, what if there are some concerns here? What if growth is really has stalled? Uh, what if it, when they do return to growth, that pace of growth is much slower? And you can sort of draw that line of reasoning out and still get to a point where it's like, you know what? That's not a crazy, that is not a, a, a there's there's not a high hurdle here for me to get a decent return. So would, what would it take for you to actually buy some shares yourself? Uh, a bit of extra cash would help. Uh, that'd probably be the main thing if I'm being honest. So, but it's not your highest conviction idea or be in your portfolio already. Uh, yeah, that's true. Although there are taxation considerations. So if I was to sell yeah, down true. some other stuff. So and yeah. it, but it's, I mean, it's just put out new information recently. That's that it's turning around. Matt loves his inflection points. Yes. He's talked about them before. If you're going to be optimistic and if you're going to try and make the, the buy case, which I'm not sure I would, would buy it. But, oh, oh, that's clear. No, no, I'm not that against it. I was just playing devil's advocate. I, I think it's an interesting one. It pays a dividend, cash flow, software company. Yeah, there's a lot to like Zero about debt. it. Like, honestly, if Australia, if you're a little bit bearish on the Aussie economy too, they're, gonna, they're not going to feel that at all. It just makes no difference but, to what they're going to do. Yeah, that's true. And the, the other thing is... is Plus you know, a weaker Aussie dollar is great for them, obviously. If they're recovering, if they're turning things around, as you've painted, they've gotten some of their reseller agreements back in order, blah, blah, blah. Yep. There could have been some short-term shorter term issues that have weighed it down mm. now it's pleasing the market again yeah perhaps if you would argue that it's back into an inflection point where it can start growing earnings again because it, it it is i think based on the base most recent announcement yeah absolutely the first half is going to be really strong i mean yeah. their their pre-tax profit could be as much as 26 percent higher on, on their indicative numbers yeah so 26%. Yeah, no, that's great news. So a 30-year-old company. Well, so look, I think I actually am a little interested and maybe it is one to take a look at. It's definitely bumped up a few spots on my watch list. Well, because look, I, I do. I always welcome I always welcome your, you as a sounding board because um, sometimes we don't always align. And it's, it's always the, the worst. The thing that we love as investors, but the thing that is terrible for us is confirmation bias. So the, my monkey brain loves it when you go, oh, Andrew, that's a great idea. I love it as well. But my rational brain loves indulge, it even more. We when do you indulge go, in a bit of confirmation bias. We do. Here. We do. But my, my, <laughs> my rational brain really likes it when you go, are you sure about that? Because it does, it does give you pause for thought anyway mate that is my pitch let's not go on too much about integrated research what about xref yeah so what, what are they the startup big picture what, what do they do so they basically do reference checking for big companies or big organizations okay. when you say reference so if i'm applying for a job yeah so if you so imagine that we're i guess the hr department we're trying to hire in a big company and we might take a quite a large number of uh, interview candidates to the point where we want to actually check their references. And this can be a time-consuming pr- process. Mm-hmm. And the old way, I guess, is like you call people and you email people and it's a, it can be a lot of work. Mm. So I'm told for the actual uh, people checking the references. For the HR department. Yeah, so basically the, they this is outsourcing that and they XREF gets uh, the individual's to basically take responsibility for getting their referees mm. to um, fill out the relevant questions, and then making them av- and then XREF software makes them available to the HR department. So I guess it's a little more structured than perhaps you might think of reference checking, mm. and it's I guess maybe a little less personal, less of a feel for it. But is, arguably- that, is that all it does? It seems really narrow. 
Well, that that is the core of what it does. It creates more efficiency mm. for the actual HR department by getting this stuff done. And it does this at fairly low cost by having the software and the systems uh, that require that are required to, I guess, automate the process of checking reference. So it's yeah. really an automation play. Mm. And then they go and charge those big companies an amount that's similar to the cost that it would be for the big companies to have someone going and checking these references. Now, gotcha. I said it's not all it does mm. because even though that is the absolute core of it, the yeah. value proposition, there's also certain when you automate things and when you're collecting all this data and keeping it, there are also certain sort of synergies and benefits that come out over time. For example, hypothetically, you could you can reuse the answers from one reference check to another. Oh, yeah. Also, hypothetically, uh, that is if it's in within the same organization. Gotcha. Um, and then hypothetically, in the future, the organization who's done those reference checks and mm. has those references, somebody might not be right for a single, a, a certain job that they applied for. Yeah. But when they're looking for another position, they've still got that, they've still got that data there. Yeah. So it's, it, there's the potential for synergy, which is of course like a big sell mm. for the company looking forward to how it's going to develop its product and where it could grow into. Yeah. But at the moment, it's basically just trying to automate that reference check process. It, it, so it is quite simple and it is quite niche. And that's one of the biggest risks, if you ask me. Okay. Because, or, or more particularly, this was also in the write-up that Matt Brazier did. And yep. he, he researched into this, which is basically there is some risk that the big HR software companies, um, so like Workday is the big one in America, yeah, right, right. they could start basically just... Add it as a feature. Adding it as a feature yeah. potentially. Yep. And, you know, in Australia, probably some listeners are familiar with Elmo software, which I actually owned for quite yeah, some right, time. Elmo, I, yes. I sold out of that a little while ago. But, mm. um, yeah, look, I think I, Elmo's I, I, a good... I hear your risk. I, I hear what you're saying. Elmo's a good company. These HR rollups are good companies. What XREF does is quite specific. Mm-hmm. But there are some advantages to being in a niche when you're doing a software product and an automation product. You can just be really good at the one thing you, you do or the handful of things that you do. And shareholders like myself are basically believing that they can succeed at that. Yep. And certainly their sort of sales growth implies that they're getting traction. Uh, this is what I was going to add. Often when, I think from an, in, from an investor's perspective, you approach a company and they offer a certain product or service. If you're not in that space it can be very opaque you know i've never i've never had to do referee checks and all that kind of stuff and so you're going well is it that really that hard and and it's really hard to sort of understand the value proposition but one when you mentioned that you wanted to talk about this I did a little bit of reading and one of the things that really makes you sort of pay attention is the fact that since they i think they did a reverse listing wasn't it in 2016 um and um in fact, even before then, they've got some numbers. The, the The customer growth and the sales growth has been absolutely phenomenal. I want to say a hundred percent. Like they doubled their sales last yeah, year. Yeah, so it's a little shorter. It's a little short of that, but okay. it's in that vicinity. So, so it was like, oh, that's interesting. Um, my next port of call for a, a company like this is you go look at the, uh, the 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 4C statement to the ASX, so their quarterly cash flow statement, and lo and behold, they're they're operating profit. Positive, uh, cash flow positive. Yeah, so although that is true, yep. and that's something I really love to see. However, uh, that is with the benefit of the R and D rebate stuff. I totally hear you on that. Um, uh, nevertheless, that 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 looks pretty interesting. I'm, and where where I'm going to um, 
and again, I've, I've just glanced at it, but what, what a couple of questions that I wanted to ask you on it was one, the valuation has, you know, we talk about integrated research coming way back from its highs. Same with XF, uh, XREF, right? So we hit 80 cents in late 2017, and they're about half of that today. Um, and even despite that, they're still trading at around 10 times sales. So what, is that another case of the market getting too carried away and coming back to more reasonable levels? So and- that... It- so that would be my guess. Yeah. I certainly wasn't buying at those very sure. high levels. I needed to see more growth. And actually what I really needed to see was evidence of some kind of um, inflection point. Mm. And I guess the inflection point that I see the company creeping up on is, uh, okay, I guess, sure, I'm looking for something here. So maybe this is flawed mm. thinking. But what, I, what I'm looking at here is if you just look at the receipts from customer, customers versus the staff costs, which is the major expense I, in a sort I of software company. you're talking about, yeah. Yeah, so if you just look at that, then five quarters ago, the receipts from customers, which is the cold hard cash coming in, yep. admittedly, so that doesn't always necessarily line up with revenue, yep. but that was about half um, staff costs. Yep. And, and the most recent quarter that they reported is getting like really close yeah. to uh, reaching um, staff costs. Yeah. And, and those staff cost growth had really flat or plateaued, right? Or starting to well, really plateau. Well, not as much as I would like. So yeah. my biggest risk and my biggest concern with this company is like having researched them and stuff like that, a fast growing tech company, they've raised capital on the back of their share price strength. More, more than a, more than once, right? Yeah, yeah. And, but they've they've got over still 10 million in the bank. So yeah. yeah, funding's not a major concern in the very near future, which is a good thing. Yeah. But also um, there's the risk of what I like forever now refer to as the catapult trap where <laughs> you're growing revenue and that's impressive and yep. you've got a great product but you're but also just like growing costs in, in like other words crazy. you're not scaling well you're not scaling well so this top line looks super impressive but there's just nothing sort of being spat out for shareholders yeah well it's like end. whether you're actually well it seems whether you're man, whether the board level decisions is there somebody on the board banging the table and saying we're trying to do this for the value of shareholders or yep. this like, great, we've got traction, raise more capital, we yep. can hire more people, yep. have an office refurbishment, yep. buy a foosball table, like <laughs> all of that sort yep. of stuff. I don't know. Um, this, I illust- like I illustrated with the, uh, uh, the write-up with a picture of um, some sort of company celebration, which they're of course entitled to. Sure. But I always wonder when I see... Um, a company promoting how much like fun and celebrating and dressed yeah. up and everybody is because I'm like uh, okay not, so not cost focused perhaps yeah exactly yeah. so that's a message they're perhaps telling for like trying to recruit more staff or whatever well th- that was interesting you, you mentioned that that was one of the things I was also going to ask you about was one of these scenarios where companies like to talk about their revenue obviously their revenues and it's been growing incredibly strong obviously but because of the capital raisings on a per share basis, I think sales have been flat for a couple of years. Now, now I'm not, I'm not going to say for a second that that's an automatic um, negative because if you think about it, right, if let's say you and I have a business. Well, to me, it sort of is an automatic negative and then you might have reasons why it's okay. It's a red flag. Okay. Let's call it a red flag. Well, I, f- I feel like that's harsher than automatic negative. Oh, really? Okay. Well, I mean, a red flag is in, oh, we need to pay attention to this. But it's interesting, right? So legitimately, and you see this with some of the most successful companies in the world. Like you want to talk about, I don't know, Amazon or 
Apple or in the early stages, you have this incredible growth. How are you going to ensure that you keep growing and keep doing it? You, you can't do it all with three people. You need to increase your cost base. It's an absolute essential thing if you want to be a much, much bigger company. Yeah, um, but at a certain point, you need to be able to show that you can grow revenue without constantly I increasing 100% agree. I 100% so, agree. My, my, only point, my only point is, just to finish, is, is that it, it needs to be something that you monitor closely. But I think it's, I think it's dangerous and, and cynical to assume that just because costs are growing that it is always negative. Now, you, you mentioned company that I don't want to refer by name that hasn't scaled well to date. Um, and so, yes, there's the, the market is littered with examples where that hasn't happened. But um, I was encouraged to see with XREF that they're actually making a very, it seemed to be in their slide deck, a couple of clear slides here saying, actually, we've got the cost base pretty much in place here. From now on, we can scale. From now on, we can get to this EBITDA break. And I think management gets some pretty juicy options and, and whatnot if, if they can manage to hit yeah so they seem to some well, good they, say, they look so so the founders did sell some shares a while back they still own a huge like a, an adequate chunk mm. of the company but still i prefer it when they own 40 percent like uh, a little under the integrated research founder actually close to i think it's 37 oh, percent. there you go uh so that's a positive uh, there, are, there are a few negatives. There are a few, there are a few risks. Mm. For me, it's one of those situations where it reminds me of Volpara back when nobody was looking at it. Yeah. So actually what happened is Volpara listed at around 50 cents. Mm -hmm. I think at 50 cents. And I sort of was watching it from the get-go because it's sort of right in my wheelhouse. Yep. And at a certain point, it fell all the way down to about 30-something cents. Yep. When I actually bought shares, like I don't know, 33 cents, I want to say. It's had a 40% fall, yeah. Yeah, and this just shows like... And it had been as high as like 60 or 70 before then. Mm. So it just shows how the attitudes can change around these software companies. It fell so very, very massively. low. And now it's like up to very, very high again. Yep. Like yep. I do own a little of that, but yep. I did sell it like some of my shares mm -hmm. at like above $1.20 or whatever. Yeah. And around a dollar, I think. Mm. But... The, because these companies are pre-profit and potentially very fast growing, mm. it's very hard to value them. So they can their share that price is, can sw so swing wildly. Yeah. So you've got one scenario where they show in, insufficient cost discipline. They don't track towards break even. Yeah. In which case, I think I would sell shares. Yeah. You got another scenario where like there's more founder selling that would break my tolerance for yep. for more selling there. Yeah. Uh, so. There's a number of reasons why I'd sell it. At the moment, I'm just sort of watching and accumulating like I did back with Volpara at 33 cents. I was mm. pretty nervous about that then as well. Mm. I bought a little shares and then I bought more shares mm. at higher prices as they delivered. Yep. And that's what my intention with XREF would be. Mm. But with a market cap of around 80 million and with fast growth, with reasonably adequate funding, I, I could definitely see them actually having a multiples higher share price yep. in the future if this is well managed, if management wins the support and the trust yep. of capital markets, which is all a little bit unknown with just like not that long under their belt. Yeah. looks pretty attractive risk reward for me at current mm. prices. Mm. I bought it just, I think my average price is just above 46 cents okay. over a couple of transactions. Yep. So um, that's nice. And, th and that's just sort of a start for me and, okay. and their quarterly will come out soon. So, I'll be looking at expenses just as closely as I will at the top line and the commentary on that yeah, one. Yeah, gotcha. And ultimately, you know, depending on... Every, as we get more data on the company, I'll basically assess it and either do nothing or, yeah. or buy or sell depending on how they're going. But what I'm looking to see is basically 
revenue and receipts growing much closer faster than expenses yep. so that you can sort of track a plausible line towards break even yep. once they reach break even the power is much more in their hands yep. they can try to raise capital if they want to accelerate growth mm-hmm. but, but they not, don't have to they're not relying on and capital that's markets. the most important thing nice pitch man i like it it's it's definitely encouraged me to look more, uh, look at it a, a bit closer so let's get on to the uh to the questions andrew uh how about you you take the first one we got so many, so look. Apologies to any that we don't get to. We will we will do a follow up, but we got a good one from Luke. Um, he was basically saying one challenge he's grappling with is whether to sell, and he puts in brackets for significant losses, poorer quality growth stocks which just haven't gone his way. So he's talking about Catapult. He's talking about uh, MSL Solutions. A couple we talked about last week. In fact, a couple I have recommended. My hand up is up for that. CCX. What's CCX? I, I don't know. I'm not sure. CCX and PVS as well. And he's basically saying, look, I've had these growth companies. They haven't gone the way I want. Is now the time to switch these for higher quality businesses, which he's saying he now looks thinks is cheap. And he's actually mentioned company here like uh, Google and PayPal. Um, and, and Reese. Reese as well. I assume that's Reese. And I think SQ is Square as well. So a couple of these big sort of US technology companies. So he's basically saying, one, one, my internal monologue says, don't sell relatively cheap stocks in a Okay, downturn. so what's the, what's the answer? The other tells me to invest only in higher quality. Come, I think it's a really, really, really good question. Uh, I think I think the hardest thing here is to reset your thinking and avoid a lot of these anchoring problems that we've we've talked about before. So a lot of the time we end up making decisions based on what our personal profit or loss is. When in reality, the market doesn't know what you bought your shares for. It doesn't care what you bought your shares for. The only thing that matters is where to from here. Um, it's a very, very diff- difficult intellectual exercise, but I-, I would say here, Luke, that you know, yes, it's always frustrating when things don't go your way. But the question here, and we've we've said this repeatedly, is what was your initial investment thesis, and is it clearly broken? Can you reframe a legitimate, objective one at this point in time that makes sense? And if you can't, bite the bullet absolutely and make the transition. Silver lining, you get a bit of a tax loss. Uh, but more importantly, you switch you switch horses mid, midway through the race, and your jockey might be on a, a, a more more of a thoroughbred than a than a dusty old yeah. nag. So none of this could be interpreted as like directly asking Luke's question in the case of those actual mm. companies. Mm. But I guess what I would have to say is that I see a psychological trap in what you see as contrarian, gutsy. I'm sticking to the thesis <laughs> stuff. And it's because I've been there before and it's because I've actually suffered through the pain of trying to sort of help other people through that as well. Yeah. And I think whilst there is a certain um, inclination to a a bias, as it were, to sort of sell to stop the pain, which you need to be aware of, I think there's also uh, a, a certain denial factor where you don't want to admit you are wrong. Yep. And people... Very powerful. Yeah, people really underestimate that one. Oh, and I think it really varies huge. a lot on how um, prideful you are. Yep. So I think step one is mm. if you can sort of tell everyone and tell your mates and tell your mum about this terrible investment you made, you're at least getting... You're trying to put yourself in a psychological... T- state to be clear-eyed mm-hmm. so if you actually make yourself suffer the the hit to your pride mm-hmm. which is actually something i've i do quite a bit mm. is talk about my my losers yep. and i've had people say to me it's like oh you don't have to make a big deal about it you know we're trying to put you as a you're yeah. an expert or whatever don't you know <laughs> and i'm like well it's a, sort of my own sake yeah. 
I want to just put that out there so that I remove pride from the decision making process. Is, I, by the way, as I, best as I can, I am I am always super cynical. Whenever I meet Which an you, investor, we obviously do for each other as well. I, it's 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 a massively valuable process. I am always super super skeptical whenever I meet an investor and all they talk about is their winners. And I'm just like, I don't care if you're Warren Buffett or Howard. Ma- I don't care who you are. You you are going to have a litany of like horrible mistakes in your in yeah. your past, and and you're going to experience them in the future. So I lo- those so- that are very candid about them are the better investors there's that one I, look anyway so i guess getting a little more specific you, when you get in a situation where you're kind of having second thoughts of a company i think most of the time if you really examine it hard then probably your original thesis is long broken mm-hmm. and you're you're adapting it now now it may well be that there's a new thesis that could be yeah. accurate as long as you're honest with yourself and as long as you're being objective channeling matt here you know like if you sold it today would you buy it back it's great he would definitely say that I it's a great heuristic yeah and so for me that sort of thing got me has got me over the edge to sell yep. quite a few times yep and half the time i know by the time i'm asking matt hey matt do you think i should sell this stock that i'm down 50 percent on <laughs> he'll like sort of just say that to me and then i'll sort of sell it that day yeah, right okay so i think that's something i mean we can't obviously give Luke specific advice, but I, I guess I guess the, the the long and the short of it is is a, approach it afresh. So anyway, moving on to the next question. I think we've probably only got one time for one more. Unfortunately, All right, well, well, I'm, we, well, I'm you, choosing your choice. It. It's, so like we got uh, a great email from Sean, which had three questions, and um, we, we won't try to answer all of them today. But uh, one of them was about uh, he saw a tweet saying that emotional quotient is more important than EQ, that's emotional quotient, is more important than IQ when it comes to investment Mm. outperformance. In other words, a good emotional temperament will trump intelligence investing. What are your thoughts on this? Um, Sean, I I 100% think that EQ is is more important. Look, it's one of those things. Like, if you've got an IQ of twenty, in two you're going to have trouble doing. You're going to have trouble doing it, right? So you, you yeah. need. To, but I don't think you need to be a genius to be a great investor. I think if you've got average intelligence, you have every potential to be a great investor. And the difference that separates you from others with the same intelligence who aren't is that emotional temperament. That is a huge, huge advantage if you can hold your nerve when everyone else is losing their heads. Well, I agree about that huge advantage. Holding your nerve is very important. Of course, working on your emotional quotient should be part of your strategy. Yep. But I also disagree that you can be a great investor if you have average intelligence. I, I can't remember Warren Buffett's quote on this, but it was sort of like, oh, if your IQ is like 120, then it's no more value. There's no more value after that. Yeah, right. yeah that sounds about right to okay. me. Okay, anyway, so moving on to the next question though, because Sean had a few and I really liked the second one. And I'm interested to see what you say, because I'm sure it'll be flippant, but try to be serious. Okay. What is your purpose or inspiration in investing? Is there a higher purpose that drives you? Oh, that is a good question. Um, I'd like to say yes, but no, I want to make money. I, I, I knew you would say that. I do. And, now, and having said that, I don't, want to, I don't want any harm to come from my but investing. Why do you activity. want to make money? I'm trying to better my situation. I'm trying to better that. Uh, give my. I think money well, you is. You can at least make that sound better by being like your family situation. That they can look after themselves. This is about me, Claude. <laughs> no, I think. I think. Andrew's like, I want a boat, and uh... <laughs> I don't even want a boat. I've, right. I'm not. I've. I've got very low requirements as as a as a person in terms of creature comforts. So for me, um, I think that there, unless unless you have a goal to beat the market, 
there is zero, unless you get an inherent value in just the very process and you enjoy investing for, for its own sake, there is no point whatsoever in investing if you don't beat the market. And the reason I say that is because you, you, can, you can basically buy an index and, and do nothing. You know, it's, it's the easiest thing in the world. You're outperform most of the experts. It's, it's just a no-brainer. So if you're going to do this, you need to do better than the market. Otherwise, it's a waste of time. And Fair. so my goals are to beat the market and I also enjoy, I really enjoy the process too. Ah, there you go. Well, that's nice. Maybe, yep. see, but I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm here for the money, my I'm going to teach you how to make that sound better, mate. But like, oh yeah, I want to better my family. And also it's like my <laughs> calling. Yeah. Anyway, but for me, yep. well, maybe it's just that. I'll, it's probably a giveaway in the in the website that you run is the, that you've, you've got a, yeah, a more so noble take on it than me. The way I actually even started investing is originally I was working in renewable energy, mm-hmm. but then I realized that it was going to be hard to uh, keep my job I once my company folded because the prime minister changed mm-hmm. and it's a bit of a soccer ball, that whole industry. Let's not go down that rabbit hole. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so it's a bit of a tough one. And so I'd actually been investing sort of the whole time, yeah. um, but without making it my 100% focus. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, oh, actually, look, I think the problem for some companies is that they don't have enough people interested in investing in them and so i'd be like an ethical investor Mm -hmm. which doesn't have any sort of fixed definition it just means that i think about whether i like what the company is doing as well as whether i can make money out of it totally fair enough too and there's no there's no like precise rules i've bought companies in the past that i wouldn't buy today yeah maybe in the future i'll buy companies that i would actually there's companies that i've sort of changed my view on you know actually used to be really all for salmon farming yeah and now i'm not at all for salmon farming from the ethical standpoint yeah yeah or even from a consumer standpoint farmed salmon is everywhere i guess it's a different story but i I don't i don't like to eat it much anymore yeah yeah. yeah. i still it's it's interesting you know i i would like to tell you let's give a really let's give a really polarizing example i would like to tell you that i would never invest in a tobacco company having said that and there's none on the asx that i'm aware of but uh, having said that if there was an opportunity i thought was a very very strong investment case i don't know if i could hand on heart say i would avoid that for the ethical dimension that probably paints me in a very bad light but but for me this is a it's a financial endeavor but you know what I'm, you know what i mean for me that yeah, is that, primary but if i that's can fine. layer no, that with ethical totally, considerations that's totally legitimate. it's, it's Look, a positive it's a there's no one right way to invest nor is there a right way to live your life there's many good ways to live your life look um we started by thinking well without matt this is going to be like 20 minutes and we've, we've gone longer well, than well, when matt we, is here is a good he's the one that keeps factor. us on time so i do apologize for that i hope you have found it valuable and thank you for listening thank you very much for listening remember as always you can reach out to us on email three wise monkeys podcast at gmail.com uh you can find myself you can find matt you can find claude all on twitter we'll put all the links in the show notes if you want to get in contact with us and we really appreciate it if you do uh as always we'd encourage you to give us a bit of a a like or a good review on any of the platforms that you are using helps us spread the message and thank you for listening thank you for all the people that have written in and uh we love it yeah it's really keeping us going well otherwise it's just you know just us talking to ourselves so (laughs) it's we do appreciate it but we will wrap it up thank you very much we'll be back again next week we'll have matt back in the saddle to keep us on time but until then Happy investing. See ya.